So have you ever had to use a password? Ever had to use a password? Ever had to change a password? Yeah, I'm in a little square dance right now with, with Instagram. It seems that a few weeks ago when, when the upgrade happened, one of those upgrades on my app happened, it, it kept the church account fine, but for some reason it, it kicked me out of my personal account. So, you know, I sent an email, you know, trying to get a reset password, and, and it just hadn't worked out because I'm not getting the email. It says I'm getting the email, but I'm not getting the email. And I've checked every folder. I've checked my inbox. I've checked my spam box. I've checked my, my junk box. I've checked the... Uh, what is the other one? Oh, just uh, my promotions box. Um, I've even checked my, checked my box of, you know, dark chocolate, you know, coconut granola bars. It, it's not in there. I mean, I, I can't, no box is having my email. So I've contacted customer support, and, and I'm in the middle right now of kind of waiting. It seems what I had to do was to use a picture and send it to them, and now some algorithm is trying to figure out if my face is actually really my face. And if so, then they'll send me a password reset. So... I don't know. We'll see how it goes. It's interesting. You know, changing a password can be pretty frustrating, you know, especially when the frustration is centered on what you have to do to change your password, right? The instructions that come with it. You know, you've seen this before. You know, it has to include a a capital letter and a lowercase letter and a number and a symbol and a punctuation mark and you know, whoever was the, the captain of your kickball team on April 5th, 1983, and, and then, of course, the paw print of a woolly mammoth. You know, you need all of these things as part of your password change in order to move forward. Yeah, you've been there. I came across a security blog about online help, and on this blog, it had a list of passwords, uh, more than 500 passwords that have actually been used. And they said they're all dangerous, so, so don't ever use these again. They were dangerous to begin with. But, but by all means, don't, don't use these things. I'm, I'm just going to share some. And we'll start at 500 and, and work our way down. No, I'm just going to do a few. Um, here, here they are. Okay, here's, here's some actual passwords. Password. That was somebody's password. I need a password. New password. Nothing. Nothing again. I forgot. Why do I always forget? Then some cultural ones here. You can't handle the password. Nobody puts baby in a corner. And then one more, never going to give you up. Technically, you did not just get Rickrolled, okay, uh, because I think you have to actually show a clip of the video, so I was, I was a little kind there. So why do we have to have a password? What's the point in having a password? Well, primarily, it is to protect us from financial and practical fraud, but also to protect our identity. Now, those are a couple of good things, right? To protect us from financial and practical fraud and to protect our identity. Those are two really, really good things. There is a password, one password, though, that is the best password anywhere on the planet. It has a 100% success rate guaranteed when it comes to ultimately protecting you from fraud and ultimately protecting your identity. Matter of fact, this password has a 100% guaranteed success rate no matter what you face in life. And and the interesting thing is this password is not hard to remember, but we forget it all the time. 
which is strange because it is super short. So, what's this password? Well, let's see if we can find out. Listen as we look together at Romans chapter 8, verse 31. The Apostle Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? What shall we say to what things? Well, Paul's writing a letter here to some folks in ancient Rome, and he has been writing to them in the previous sentences about sin, suffering, and weakness. Sin, suffering, and weakness. The the three things that create the greatest amounts of stress and anxiety and worry and fear and frustration and confusion in our lives. Sin, suffering, and weakness. And Paul asks a pretty fair question. He says, so what are we going to do about these things? You know, what are we going to say to these things? What are we going to think about these things? What are we going to do with these things? How are we going to respond to these things? Now, I just want you to chew on that just for a minute. How are you responding to life right now? How are you responding to life? How are you thinking? How are you talking? How are you behaving? What are you changing in the way you talk? What are you changing in the way you think? What are you changing in the way you do? What are you doing different? How are you responding to life right now? Are you, in the words of philosopher Samuel T. McGraw, living like you're dying? Or are you just working in the yard a little more? Or are you vegging out a little more? A little more TV, a little more video games? Or are you so overwhelmed with the notion of things getting back to normal again that you are completely ignoring that things will never be back to normal again? Why? Why are things never going to be back to normal again? Here's why. Pandemic or no pandemic, There is one thing you can count on every single day of your life, and that's this, change. Change. You can like it or not like it. You can ignore it or or not ignore it. You can cooperate with it or not cooperate with it, but change is constant, and normal changes every day. So what do we do? What do we do when we consider the the change in our life? Well, change may be drastic, like a stay-at-home order. Or change may be doable, like using half and half instead of cream. Change could be major, like sickness, like a virus. Or change could be minor, like your hair is a little longer than you want it to be. But change is constant and normal changes every day. So so what do we do? How do we respond? When, When our whole world is in a state of constant change, when the new normal changes every single day, what do we do? What is the tool that we need more than any other tool to help in how we think and how we talk and how we behave? Well, the only way to answer that question is with a question. And so the way we answer that question is with this question. How have you responded to God? 
How have you responded to God? When it comes to God, you're either with Him or you're without Him. When it comes to Jesus, He is either a dead religious maniac or He is the risen Messiah. When it comes to Jesus, He's either a a mystical charlatan or He is the resurrected Christ. So, So what have you done with Jesus? How have you responded to God's gospel about Jesus? Now, some people will say that question is pointless and useless. It's unnecessary. It's, it's the kind of question that only a silly, immature person who needs a religious lucky charm would even ask. Other people would say, well, all the people I know going to church, they're just a bunch of hypocrites anyway. I like how one pastor responded to that. He said, I don't know most people going to church, but I know you. What is your verdict on Jesus, not on his followers? What is he? A crook, a psychotic, a fanatic, a hypocrite? What is Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? How have you responded to God's gospel about Jesus? And so what? I mean, why does it matter? Here's why it matters. Apostle Paul writing to the folks in Corinth says this, For the word of the cross, the word about Jesus, the gospel about Jesus, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Life and death, hope and horror, trust and terror, perfection and perishing, all of those things are wrapped up in the gospel, the truth about Jesus and his cross and his empty tomb and his resurrected life, and his return. Everything is wrapped up in Jesus. Now, I realize that this past week, as as I've read about this week, all of us are having to function at our best in the two things that we are our best at. You know, the the two things, the two roles in our life that we're best at. We're having to to play those roles almost 24 hours a day. And of course, those roles are infectious disease experts and constitutional scholars, right? I mean, we are all, that that is our expert roles, right? You you know, we we may be functioning in a lot of different roles. We may have a, a ton of different ideas. We may be confused or frustrated. We may be a little depressed or we may be demanding. But at the end of the day, when you breathe your last, whenever that may be, you will not be thinking about a virus or a job or a lost job. You won't be thinking about an executive order. You won't be thinking about long hair. You won't be thinking about a graduation ceremony. You won't be thinking about the stock market. You won't be thinking about a canceled Little League baseball season. When we breathe our last, what we will think about the most is what we have done with Jesus. How have you responded to God's gospel about Jesus. That's what will be on our mind. And why does that response matter so much? What's what's the big deal? Well, your response to Jesus, your response with Jesus matters because it allows you access to the password of all passwords. And what is that password? 
Well, so Paul asked the question. He says what? What then shall we say to these things? And then he answers it with the password. Here's the password. Ready? If. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's the password. Short. Two letters. If. Now, I know at first glance, this sounds a little iffy. But stay with me, okay? If is a word of condition. If you eat seven cake batter donuts, you probably are going to feel mentally better. But in time, you will not feel physiologically better, okay? If you cut your quarantine hair with the fish scaler on your Swiss Army knife, you might feel mentally better for a moment, but when you go look in the mirror, you will not feel cosmetically better. If is a conditional word. And this if here is not accidental. If you have the condition connected to this if, then you have the password that brings you deep joy, deep love, deep hope, deep peace no matter what situation you may find yourself in. So what's the condition with the if? What's the condition with this simple password? Paul tells us, look what he writes next. If God is for us, if God is for us, how do you know? How do you know if, if God is for you? Well, in a sense, God is for you because jobs exist and because school exists and because houses exist and because cars exist and because money exists and because medicine exists, because laws exist, because lawnmowers exist, because sports exist, because haircuts exist, because cake batter donuts exist. In other words, Part of the way that God is for you is because the world exists and you exist. God in his kindness has purpose that you would be alive and that you would be able to enjoy life, understand life, live a fulfilled life in creation even when that fulfilled life, the beauty of life is on hold to some degree or, or curtailed by a pandemic. God in his kindness has given you common grace because you exist. But God is also for you in a sense, in a unique sense, in a strategic sense. He was for you before you existed. He was for you before the foundations of the world existed. How? Well, one day Jesus was teaching his disciples and he was talking to them about the final economy. The, the final economy. When the, when the final economy is instituted, everyone's account will be closed and everyone will be held accountable on what's in their account. Meaning, is the righteousness of Jesus in your account or is the only thing that's in your account your education and your accomplishments and your money your retirement, your hobbies, your political party, your memorabilia collection. What's in your account? 
Jesus was teaching them about the final economy and the, the moment when everyone's account will be closed. And this is part of how he described it. Matthew chapter 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God was for you in the sense that before the foundations of the world, he made a way for things to be right between you and him. God was for you because of the plan he created. He created a way for you and I to ultimately be rescued from sin and suffering and weakness and arrogance and ignorance and fear and frustration and confusion and anger and hypocrisy and stress and anxiety and everything else. God has made a way for us to be ultimately saved, ultimately rescued. And what is that way that he made? Well, this is how Paul told the folks in a place called Galatia. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you have been perfect this week? How many of you, everything that you have said or thought or done has been perfectly innocent or has been perfectly full of love and thanksgiving? No one should be raising your virtual hand right now, okay? We, we have not been perfect this week. Far from. And because of the economy of history, because of, of God's economy over all of history, the truth of the Bible tells us that failure to perfectly and continually keep God's law means that a person is put underneath the curse. And that curse is eternal death and eternal separation from God. That curse is in the account of any person who is without Christ. All that sounds like super terrible, awful news. Except for this. There is a glorious way for there to be a transfer in the account. The curse can be deleted from your account and the righteousness of Jesus can be put into your account. Now, you can't earn that credit to your account. You can't make that deposit to your account. The only way your account changes is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But clearly, we have this amazing truth that Christ redeems us from the curse. That our account changes when we put our faith, when we yield and surrender to Jesus. And that means our if changes. That if that has happened, then God is now uniquely and eternally and intensely for you. Because of Christ, God is for you. Yes, God is, is for you in the sense of, of common grace that you exist, but... If you have repented of your sin, if you've turned to Jesus, if you are looking at Jesus as the only perfect substitute, if you're clinging to Jesus as the only perfect substitute for sin, then God is now 
for you and he is for you forever and ever and ever. But still, someone's heart and mind might say, well, so what? I mean, well, why does it matter? Why, why does that if matter? Well, what does that if password get you access to? Well, look what Paul says next. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who's against us? Well, let me tell you that the folks who heard this letter the first time, sometime around 60 AD, when that question came up in the reading of the letter, who's against us? You know what they would have thought immediately? I'll tell you who's against us. The government's against us. The politicians are against us. Our neighbors are against us. The economy is against us. We have wars with other countries because they're against us. And we have sickness, and we have famine, and we have fire, and we have disease. We have all kinds of things against us. That's what they would have been thinking. In other words, their thoughts would not be much different than the way some of us think, right? Because we might think, man, when you look at all that's happening in my life, it sure feels like God is against me. Ever felt that way? Maybe you're feeling that way today. Here's the thing, though. If you are in Christ, the curse has been lifted. Therefore, it is not possible for God to be against you. It's not possible. Just, just think on that for a second. If your child is rebellious, God is not against you. If your spouse is difficult, God is not against you. If your dishwasher breaks, God is not against you. If your check engine light comes on, God is not against you. If your job is eliminated, God is not against you. If your health goes south, God is not against you. That's not how it always feels though, is it? When those things happen, part of the first thing that goes through our mind is, God, why are you letting this happen? So how can we know that any of that is true? How can we know it's because this if, this password if, if God is for us, it is bigger than all those other ifs. No matter what the if may be in life, the if of God being for us cancels out, crushes, and presses down all those other ifs. That's why it's such a powerful password. If you are in Christ, I just, I just want you to think on that for a second. If God is for you, then he can't be against you. If God is for you, he... He can't be against you. If you're in Christ, if, if you've yielded your life to Jesus, then please understand, there is never a moment in your life that you can't fill in the blank. God is for Dow. There's never a moment in my life that I cannot whisper that to my soul. So here's the question. Can you put your name in that blank? 
I'm not talking about, you know, you bought a, you know, a, a nice Pinterest idea of a Bible verse to hang in your bathroom. Or, or that you've got a Bible calendar on your refrigerator. Or that you read a Bible app every morning. No, I, or that you live stream church on Sundays. No, I'm talking about in any given moment of your life, no matter what's happening, whether it's virus or health, whether it's great job or lost job, whether it's peace and happiness or it is psycho frustration and confusion, whether it's arrogance, pride, ignorance, stress, anxiety, whatever it is, at any given moment in your life, because of Christ, can you put your name in that blank? Can you say, God's for me. And, and nothing can change that. If you can't, then please consider the opposite of what Paul says. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. If God is against you, who can be for you? If God is against you, who can be for you? Spurgeon preached that sermon, I think, about 157 years ago. And when he got through making that statement, he went on to give some advice, and this was his advice. And it's the same advice I give to you. Take about 30 minutes this afternoon to deal with that question, to deal with the reality of this question. If God is against you, then what? How are you going to face death here on earth? And what will happen to you when you die? Where, where is the if in your life? The catchphrase of the last few weeks, almost everywhere you look, and about every 28 seconds of the NFL draft is, was this, right? We've heard it. We will get through this together. But what if you don't? I know you're thinking, gosh, there's some more streams. Let's switch. Let's change. This guy's depressing. But hang with me. What if you don't? In other words, what if you aren't together with God? Does it matter who else you are together with? If you're not together with God, that changes everything. And if you are together with God, that changes everything. The together really matters. I saw an article this week about a Sunday school teacher and she asked her class of kids if anybody could recite Psalm 23. Little girl raised her hand. She was four years old. She said, I can do it, teacher. She said, okay, go ahead. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. <laughs> Nailed it. See, because here's the thing. Ultimately, if God is for you, if you are together with God, ultimately, no one and nothing can successfully reject you or be against you.
That doesn't mean they can't reject you. That doesn't mean that they can't be against you, but they can't be successful in it. Because ultimately, God is for you. And that changes everything. Ultimately, you're together with God, and that changes everything. Vanitha Reisner is a wife and a mom and an author. She lives in Raleigh, North Carolina. I have quoted her many times because I just I love her heart and her mind. Vanitha's story is that when she was an infant, she got polio. When she became an adult, her infant son, Paul, died when he was only two months old. Six years after Paul's death, she was diagnosed with a medical condition that at some point will require that she has full-time care. And six years after she was diagnosed with that devastating medical condition, her husband left her and their children, and then later he filed for divorce. Vanitha has, has had a walk. This is what she says. Throughout my childhood and adolescence, I was convinced that a good God couldn't love me and watch me suffer. So I had concluded that God wasn't good, didn't exist, or didn't care. Are you there today? Have you had that thought before, or maybe you're having that thought today? Vanitha goes on. After my son died, I felt abandoned by God. If God loved me, why didn't he spare Paul's life? And after my husband left me, I would scream into the darkness, God, if you love me, why are you letting this happen to me? Ever been there? Ever felt that way? Ever had that going through your mind? Do you have it going through your mind today? So what did she do? How did, how did she survive screaming into the darkness at God? How do you survive that? Well, this is what she says. All of Scripture assures us that God is with us and that he loves us. Many of us have known this truth from childhood. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. How does the Bible tell us that? Because the Bible says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But the Bible also tells us that in Christ we have been redeemed from the curse. Our account has changed. And so for the worst moments in her life, for the most devastating, heartbreaking moments in her life, Vanitha said, I turn to the truth about God, the truth of God's Word. And the truth set her free because the truth gave her a different approach to all the things happening in her life. And what is that approach? This is what she says. We must reframe our question instead asking, because God loves me, then why did this happen? Did you catch that? We say, if God loves me, then why would he let this happen? But the question is, because God loves me, then why did this happen? Because God loves me, she says, this phrase changes everything. Everything. It, it changes everything. It changes everything. Ultimately, no one 
can successfully be against you or reject you if you have been accepted by God because God is for you. So, so what does that look like in your mind and in your heart right now? How do you get this, this idea from Scripture and this, this truth of, of how the Bible helps our heart and mind? How, how does it impact right now? This is how two simple sentences. Outside of memorizing Romans 8.31, you can ignore the rest of the sermon if you get this. Okay. This is what she says. God doesn't love your suffering. He loves you. He loves you. See, the, the baby in the manger is proof God loves you. The teachings of Jesus over and over again about the majesty and authority and power and salvation of God are proof and evidence God loves you. The cruelty of the cross of Jesus is proof and evidence that God loves you. The burial of Jesus in a tomb is proof that God loves you. And the emptying of that tomb, the resurrection of Jesus, is proof that God loves you. The ascension of Jesus into heaven, affirming His authority, His kingship over everything, is evidence and proof that God loves you. And the promise guaranteed for ages before the foundations of the world that Jesus is coming back for His own is proof and evidence that God loves you. Dear Christian, I am not an infectious disease expert. I am not a constitutional scholar. At least right now, I'm not a politician. Most of you know one day I want to do it, but we'll see. Here's what I am. I'm just some kid from North Augusta who was rescued by God. And all I have to offer you is the simple truth of the gospel. And the truth of the gospel, dear Christian, is this. God is for you. Because of Christ, it is not possible for him to be against you. God is for you. God is for you. God is for you.